Well, good morning again and welcome to worship. Now, not only to those of you who are here in our traditional sanctuary, but welcome also to those of you who are joining us right now in our contemporary service or also via broadcast. I'm glad that we have this opportunity to be together, to learn from God's Word together, even if we can't all be in the same room at the same time. And speaking of learning from God's Word together, I want you to have the opportunity to follow along and read in your Bibles. The Bible passages we'll be learning from today. So if you don't have a Bible with you, our ushers are coming up to aisles in both of our worship venues. And if you'd like to borrow one from them, please feel free to do that. And you can just put it on the shelf in the back of either of our worship venues after the worship service today. The passage that we're learning from in the Sermon on the Mount today is a passage that Jesus uses to teach us such powerful images, such powerful ideas, that it continues to be quoted by people who have never read the Bible before in their whole lives. People who don't read the Bible at all, who've never read the Bible before, quote from this passage saying things like salt of the earth, using phrases like light of the world. But very few of us, I think, as we use those phrases, really have a good understanding of what they mean. I think it's hard to understand what those phrases or images mean without understanding the story that they're a part of. And so I'd like to talk to you today about stories and begin by talking about some of the stories that we live our lives in. I learned a few things about my own family story actually just recently at the end of the summer. My parents were generous enough, very generously took us, our family and my sister's family on a trip this summer. At the end of the summer, they took us to the small town in central southern Germany where my mother was born. It's a small town called Nordlingen in western Bavaria. And one of the highlights of that trip for me was getting to spend time with my Uncle Hans, my great Uncle Hans. And I've met him before and I enjoy him very much. And one of the, one of the highlights, one of the best things about spending time with my great Uncle Hans was getting to learn from him more of the story of my great-great-grandfather, Conrad Karl Schruppel. And Conrad Karl is the one from whom I get my middle name, Karl. And he was a publisher in the 1930s in Germany, and he was anti-Nazi. He was anti-Hitler's government. And he worked together with another friend of his who lived in that same small town to try to uncover, to try to discover and, and tell and reveal the truth about the terrible regime that was growing and gaining power in their country. And because of this, when my grandmother, his daughter, when she was 14 years old in 1940, he was taken away in the middle of the night, never to be heard from again. He died for what he knew and for what he was trying to do. And I regard my great-great-grandfather, Conrad Karl Schreppel, as something of a, a minor hero, one of many people, one small force among many, gathering together, trying to fight against the power of evil that was gaining steam in his day and in his world. And partly because of him, for other reasons too, but partly because of him, I think of courage and sacrifice and truth as being a part of my story, a part of the legacy that I live into. I'd like to think that on some days, on my better days, I've lived into that legacy in my own small ways. I know that there are plenty of days when I have not lived into that story, when I have chosen actions that are cowardly or run away from sacrifice instead of living into the legacy of my very own story. All of us, I believe, live in stories. We all come from somewhere that sets us up for where we are and we're all going somewhere. Probably most of our stories are kind of a mixed bag. We probably all have some family members, some ancestors more near or farther away in history that we're proud of. We probably also have some family members that we would just as soon forget, but probably we need to learn from those stories. We probably all have moments in our own personal backstories that we feel pretty good about. We probably all have moments in our own personal stories that we don't feel so good about. 
Our stories are kind of a mixed bag. And that's one thing when we're talking about the things that are in our past. It goes to a whole other level when we talk about the stories that we live out every day in our present and that we write and leave behind for those who come after us. Maybe some of you are parents and grandparents, and you think about the stories that you're leaving behind for your great-grandsons and your great-granddaughters. And I know that it's high in your heart that you would like to leave behind the best possible story, the best possible legacy for them to inherit and be shaped by and live into. We all come into contact in different ways with friends and colleagues and neighbors, and we write chapters in their life stories. In fact, we share chapters. Chapters in their story are chapters in our story. And sometimes the things, the passages that we write in the stories of their lives are passages that help move their story forward. We write passages of blessing and benefit in their lives. Sometimes we bring burden into other people's stories. We introduce plot twists that they were not interested in having introduced into their stories. Sometimes we not only bring benefit and blessing, sometimes we bring harm and burden also into the stories of others. And we have very little sense of the stories that we live in and the stories that we're writing. We all inherit stories. We all live in stories. But we don't always understand the story that we're a part of. Whether that's a story of benefit and blessing handed down to us or a story of a burden that we also carry. We don't understand the stories that we could be writing, should be writing, and are writing. And I think that Jesus knows this very well about us. And I think he knew this very well about his own first disciples and the crowds that gathered around him as he began to preach the Sermon on the Mount. And so right here, as the sermon is really gaining steam, he invites them to see themselves in a new and different story, or a new story as far as they understood. He invites them to see themselves in a story full of grace, a story full of grace for all the parts of their stories that they were not so proud of. He invites them to live in a story full of powerful impact for all the chapters that they knew that they were going to be writing. He shows them their place in the story of God. And I'd like to show you in the Sermon on the Mount, in our readings for today, how he did that. See, if you have a Bible with you and you'd like to follow along, this would be a great time to open it up. We're going to be reading in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 17. If you have one of the Quest Bibles here, this is on page 1417, by the way. And you can just keep your Bibles open to that page or keep a thumb in that page there. We're going to read from here a couple times during our message today. This first verse that we're reading is one that is fairly famous from the Sermon on the Mount, but it's also one that I think we often don't quite get right. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, now let's just hold there for a second. Very often when Christians read this verse, we hear that Jesus did not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law. And so the questions that we start asking ourselves have to do with, well, how much law are we supposed to obey? Jesus is talking about the Old Testament here, so what about all those dietary restrictions and the things we're supposed to wear and not wear and the ancient ceremonies? Is Jesus affirming all those things for his followers? And some people read that passage, and that sure seems to be what he's saying. Other people read that passage and think, well, that can't be what he means. And in 2,000 years of Christian history and biblical interpretation, we've struggled to come to a consensus on that. And I think the reason is that we're not quite asking the right question. I say that because Jesus didn't actually say that he came to fulfill the law. What Jesus said was he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And now you put the prophets in here, and you're talking about a whole other dimension. The phrase, the law and the prophets, is a way to refer to the Old Testament as a whole, to refer to the story of the Old Testament. You talk about fulfilling the prophets, now you're talking about a story. 
You're talking about things that God has been planning to do for a long time and that God announced of old in the prophets. I will do this. Jesus points to that and says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And he said this right on the end of these famous phrases about being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He says that. Let me remind you of what it was that he says here about the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You can follow along with me here again if you want. This is starting in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, he said to his disciples. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And he tells them, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Imagine a town all lit up on a hill as you walk through the darkness of the valley. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it up on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus says that, and then as if to explain that, as if to complete that thought, he says, now don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets that have come before. I haven't come to abolish them, but to bring them to fullness. That story still had a measure of emptiness in it until now when I fill it up full, which makes even more sense when you realize that Jesus didn't make these images up. He took them from the law and the prophets especially this phrase about being the light of the world. He took that from the prophet Isaiah. You don't have to flip the pages right now, but let me just quickly give you a couple examples. In Isaiah 42, 6, Jesus said, I'm sorry, God said through the prophet Isaiah, I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. For all the other nations, God spoke to Israel, I'll make you a light for the world. And then a couple chapters later in Isaiah 49, God says it again through the prophet Isaiah, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God had said to his people that they would be a light for the nations, a light for the world. And Jesus says to his followers, to his disciples, that's you. You're the light of the world. This story that was not yet filled up to the full, I fulfill it. And it's being fulfilled here in you. That's no less true of us now who are disciples of Jesus. Jesus continues to say to us, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. The story comes to its fullness in you. This is our story that Jesus points back to. That means that we have a crazy uncle named Isaiah who dreamed the dreams of God and said things like this. It means that we all have great-great-grandmothers with names like Ruth and Esther who were so full of courage and faith that I hope we never stop telling their stories to our sons and daughters today, that they would know that this is their story. We have great-great-grandfathers with names like Abraham and David who were human and flawed and heroic all at the same time. And these are our stories. This is our story altogether. It is a story of the grace of God. And Jesus says that it is the character of this story that those who have lived in this story and those who will live in this story are salt and light, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I think we could talk a little bit about what it means to be salt and light now, know that, now that we know the story that it's a part of. You know, when Jesus told his first disciples way back in the beginning of the first century that they were the salt of the earth, this image of salt could have meant a lot of things to them. Salt was very important for them. Salt was so important in the ancient world that people sometimes got paid in salt. Roman soldiers sometimes took their salary in salt. In fact, our English word salary comes from the same root as salt. Bet you're glad you don't get paid in salt anymore. But people did then. Salt was very important. 
One of the most important things that people used salt for in the ancient world was as a preservative. They used it to cure meat, to preserve meat for a long time in the heat. Now, I thought long and hard about bringing up a, a piece of rotting meat. I almost went to the butcher on Monday this week, and I thought I'd bring it along for you, but then I thought somebody might throw up in worship, and that probably wouldn't be so good. So uh, measure the strength of your own stomach here, and imagine for a minute the piece of, a big piece of rotting pork shoulder, a nice big beef roast, all stinky and maggoty and, and covered up and sealed so it wouldn't hurt you. It's a shame, isn't it? Because that could have been so good. It could have been a great meal, but... It wasn't protected. And so now it's all full of rot and decay and bacteria and germs. And a thing that was meant to be good, a thing that could have been a real blessing, turns out to be stinky and dangerous. And Jesus says to his disciples, who had no refrigerators at all, you are the salt of the earth. Now, we don't, they weren't supposed to protect the world from maggots and bacteria and decay, but he imagined the world being corrupted, the good things of this world that could have been such a gift and a blessing, being corrupted by the effects of sin, being corrupted by the effects of things like greed and lust and power and violence and selfishness. And Jesus says, you, you are the salt of the earth, and through you, I want to work through you to protect against the decay and the power of sin that spoils the good gifts of God's world. So how does that work? Let me tell you a couple stories. And for the first one, I want to reach just way, way back into our old, old story that Jesus says is our, is our story, way back into the story of the Old Testament. I mentioned our great-great-grandmother Ruth just a few minutes ago, and I want to tell you about another person who was in her life named Boaz. Now, Ruth was this brave and faithful woman, but she was also a, a young widow, and she was very vulnerable in her society, and she had no steady, reliable source of income. And the way that Ruth got food was that she would go out in the fields nearby and she would pick up the grain that was left behind by the harvesters as they would come through. They couldn't get it all. They'd drop some on the ground and she would pick that up. And that's how she gathered food for both herself and her mother-in-law. Well, that was a common practice. It was kind of a welfare system in their day. That was a common practice for poor women of Ruth's day. But it was also a common practice that sometimes the men who were harvesters in the field might try to take advantage of the women who were on the margins of the fields. But this field belonged to a man named Boaz. And Boaz was an Israelite. And Boaz knew the laws of God and he knew the will of God. He knew what God wanted and what God had said about things like adultery for one thing. And he knew what God had said about care for the vulnerable for another. And so he told the men who worked for him, we don't do it that way here. The book of Ruth says that he told them, don't lay a hand on her. And in fact, he said, take out some of the grain that you've gathered that rightfully belongs to Boaz. It's his field. He said, take some of that grain you've gathered that you didn't drop and leave some of it extra behind. Just go ahead and leave that behind so she can have plenty to pick up. Oh, it's not fantastic stuff that Boaz was doing. It seems like just honorable, godly behavior. I think he was salty. I think he was the salt of the earth. He was protecting against the rot and the decay, the life-stealing power of sin that was threatening to take a system that was meant to take care of the vulnerable and make it stinky and dangerous. Boaz is our great-great-grandfather. And Jesus said to us, now you're the salt of the earth. I wonder what things like that are going on in our lives. Where is it in your life and the life of this community that you think that the power of sin is threatening to take a good thing for blessing and make it stinky? and dangerous. Maybe it's something in your network or your community or your workplace, like Boaz did in his workplace. Jesus says to us, you're the salt of the earth. Let me tell you another story. 
reaching now a little bit less far back in history into the story of our own congregation. Here we are celebrating our 125th birthday this year, 125th year this year. We've got a lot of great stories of salt of the earth people in this community, in this church family. A few years ago, I was sitting down for lunch with a family who'd been members of this church for a long time, and we were talking about their life story and mine and sharing life together and sharing a meal together. And they are people very much like all the rest of us who worked in a business in this community, lived in a house in this community, raised their kids, paid their bills, took care of their own. And then somewhere along the way, God laid it on their heart that there were other children in our area, in our cities, whose parents, for one reason or another, were unable to provide the care for them that they wished that they could. And this family felt that God had put them at a place in life where they were equipped to be foster parents and eventually adoptive parents. And because of these everyday kind of choices that they made, they wound up introducing big changes into the stories of the lives of a number of vulnerable children. They wound up writing some new chapters in their own lives too. And you're never going to find their story made into a movie. It's not going to hit the front page of the newspapers. But that's how it works with salt. How does salt do its work? It dissolves into the meat that it's preserving. You rarely ever see it. That's how it is. That's when we use the phrase salt of the earth people, genuinely not famous people, but people who are working in the area around them for the blessing and the benefit of the world that's nearby them. And you and I are heirs to the legacy of 125 years of salt of the earth people. And now Jesus says to you and to me, you're the salt of the earth. It's a calling for all of us in our everyday lives in the opportunities that God has placed in our hands. You're the salt of the earth. But Jesus also said to his disciples, they're not only salty, they're also shiny. You are the light of the world, he said to them. You're the light of the world. But Jesus said something very important about how it is that our light should shine. I want to remind you about this so we don't get this wrong. So if we could put that slide up there. Jesus said very specifically, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify you. They're supposed to praise you for your good deeds, right? That's not what Jesus says. Jesus said, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. But I think very often we get scared of this verse because way too many religious people have taken this verse to say what it doesn't say and have lived their lives in such a way that attention should be drawn to them. And so I think that even when the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts encouraging us to let our lights shine, we shrink back from that because we're afraid of being showy because we're afraid of drawing attention to ourselves. But Jesus said, let your light so shine that others may see the good things happening in your life, your good deeds, what God is authoring in you, not so that attention may be drawn to you, but so that attention may be drawn to your Father in heaven. Now, how does that work? I can think of no better example of this in contemporary experience than the experiences of my friends who are in recovery from alcohol and drug addiction. They have some of the most amazing stories of victory over the life-stealing, rotting, decaying power of sin that has taken a good life and made it stinky and dangerous to themselves and people around. They have great stories of victory over these things. And yet there is this tremendous, deeply humble knowledge that they did not do this in themselves, but that it was the power and the grace of God that did this in them. About a month ago, I reached out to some friends of mine with stories like these and asked them to share some of their experience here. And, and I brought along a couple of things I wanted to share with you. One of them emailed this to me as an illustration of saying, a great way to say this. One of them wrote this, and I have permission to share this with you. While I was drinking, I would wake up every day and say, today I am going to quit drinking. And every day I would fail. 
And I felt like a terrible person because I could not control my drinking with my own willpower. And my alcoholism brought me into such despair that I would pray that I could die every night. And every morning I'd wake up and be angry I was still alive. And recovery taught me that no amount of willpower could have changed my alcoholism, that God is the only one who has the power to change me. Another one of my friends shared how important it is for him to share the hope that he has found, to share his recovery with others who need it, to share the hope that he has found with others who feel as hopeless as he used to, to say, if God can do this in me, then God can do this in you. Here's a living example. It's just exactly what Jesus said. Let your light so shine so that others may draw their attention to God and not to you, that they may see the good deeds in your life and give glory, not to you, but to your Father who is in heaven. You know, sometimes I think, I wonder to myself, do I make too big of a deal out of saying that our church needs to be a place where it's okay not to be okay? Do I harp on this too much and say that we have to be a place, we have to be a place where it's safe to tell the truth about our failure, our pain, our shame, and our sin? And then I remember experiences and stories like these. And then I read the words of Jesus like these. And I think to myself, we don't say it often enough. We don't say it loudly enough. We live by the grace of God and by no other way. And there's no room for any of us to be proud or pretend that we're okay. And no reason that anybody should feel afraid that we're a whole lot less okay than everybody else. We live by the grace of God and we live no other way. Legend has it that there's another person in our Christian backstory who said this, I think, very well. According to some sources, Martin Luther said in his last words or among his last words, said, I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And maybe you found the bread of God's grace and the hope of a different life, the hope of a new life. And if you have, I want you to know that you live in a world that is starving for the bread of grace and hope. And Jesus said, let your light shine so that others can know what you have found, so that their attention may be drawn to God, so that they may glorify our Father who is in heaven. I introduced this series on the Sermon on the Mount last week as a series of steps, a, a journey closer to Jesus. We all move toward the promise of the good life that we believe. And I invited you to make this series this fall, this good life series on the Sermon on the Mount, to make this a journey of taking steps closer to the promise of life in Jesus and farther and farther away from the empty promises that so often have our ear and, and capture our hearts. Today, I would invite you to take the step of seeing this story that Jesus says is your story, to believe him and to see yourself in this story. And maybe for some of you, that's simply a matter of learning to believe that you really do have a place in this story. Maybe it's just a matter of learning to trust that there is absolutely nothing in your personal backstory that could ever disqualify you from being a part of God's story. Maybe it's a matter of learning to trust that there are no sins in your life more spectacular or horrible than the sins of the saints that fill the pages of the Bible. Trust me on that. Jesus said you're in, you're in his story. You can take the Lord at his word. He is the Lord of grace, and you are welcome in the story of God. Maybe the invitation to you today is an invitation to step forward in living out this salty, shining story. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. And maybe you know that there's places in your life 
where the rot of sin is threatening to bring rot and decay into your life rather than you preserving against it. And maybe God is speaking through these words of Jesus to your heart today into an area of sin or temptation of some kind and calling you to difference, calling you to be different from the world for the sake of the world, for the blessing of your family or your friends or your neighbors or the people around you to write chapters of blessing into their lives. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Jesus also said, you're the light of the world. Maybe God is speaking to you through that phrase today to teach you about your story. Maybe you're the kind of person who just was really, really good at taking your light and hiding it under a bowl, lest anybody should look at you. But if you have found grace in your life and you have found hope, we live in a world full of people who need grace and hope and rarely find it. And remember, people aren't supposed to look at you anyway. You're just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. What you want them to see is grace. I believe that God is speaking to each of us through these words of Jesus today and calling us to the goodness of life. Each week during this series, we are printing on the front of the study guide. There's a study guide right in the middle of your worship bulletin and down at the bottom of the front page, there's a response question. And it's going to be almost the same question every week, just with different words to reflect the passage we're learning from that week. And it asks you to reflect and to think, how is it that God is speaking through the words of Jesus into your life today? And how do you respond to that? And I hope you'll give your attention to those questions and to the words of Jesus as we all draw closer and closer to him. Let's pray together. Good and gracious God, we thank you for the gift of your salvation, for the power of your grace, for your victory over the guilt and the power of sin. And God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, work in our lives Write us into your story. Reassure our hearts that we are in your story. And by your spirit, work in us. Accomplish in us that which we could not do for ourselves. God, make us salty. Set us free. Protect us from the rot and the decay of sin in our lives. And work in us for the good of your world. And God, let your grace shine in us. That others would see our lives and not see us, that we're so great, but that we in our own brokenness, and in the hope that we found in you, would be a testimony to your mercy and grace. We pray and we live in Jesus' name. Amen.